certainly appreciate an interest in your prayers this morning. Always do, whether I say it or not. Just, you just understand that, I hope, and realize the importance of it. Uh, this morning, I'd like to begin with a thought found in 1 Peter 5 and 10. 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 10, a thought that came to my mind a couple of days ago. Seems to have stayed there pretty steadily, so we'd like to try to address it this morning. 1 Peter 5, 10, the Apostle Peter said, But the God of all grace, who hath called you into his eternal glory by Christ Jesus. The God of all grace. The Bible is a book about grace. The grace of God is referred to many, many times, both in the Old and New Testament. And Peter says God is the God of all of that, of all grace. When I first thought about that, thought in my mind, well, what else is God the God of? And uh, look over here in the book of Romans, chapter 15. And we look in verses 4 and 5, and Paul says, For the things written aforetime were written for our learning. It means the Old Testament scriptures. Things written aforetime was written for our learning, that we through patience, through patience and consolation, might have hope. That word patience means endurance. He says, by reading the Old Testament scriptures and the examples we have, and Reading the Old Testament scripture and studying the different characters back there and all the events and everything are very profitable and beneficial to us. You might say, Brother Lawrence, I tell you, some of those portions of the Old Testament would be mighty tough. And we just got through going through First Chronicles, and I tell you, First Chronicles, about the first seven, eight, ten chapters, is pretty tough. But then it just opens up, and I love the way First Chronicles ends. It's all about the building of the temple and David and Solomon and it's just a lot of wonderful, wonderful information there. But he goes on then to say, but God is the God of patience and consolation. Now, God is where our true patience must come from and our consolation must come from. We look in verse 13, he says, Now the God of hope who hath filled you with all joy and peace. Aren't you glad we have hope today? Where does that hope come from? Who's the author of that hope? Well, it's, it's God. Certainly it's God. And then that chapter ends by saying the God of patience, the God of patience, the God of consolation, the God of peace, the God of hope. We read in the book of 2 Corinthians chapter 1 in the opening verses, and Paul is speaking about the importance of the subject of comfort now that we're to comfort one another with the comfort whereby we have received, as we've received comfort from God, received comfort in the Scriptures, received comfort from our brothers and sisters in Christ, we have opportunity, we need to try to minister comfort to other people. Where does that comfort come from? Paul said, but the God of all comfort. He's the God of all comfort. He's the God of hope. He's the God of patience. He's the God of consolation. He's the God of peace. In the 22nd chapter of the book of Matthew, we find where the Lord is addressing some Sadducees who came to him with a question about the resurrection. And they posed a theoretical scenario to him about a woman whose husband had died with no children. She married his brother. According to the law, that's what she was supposed to do. But died no children. She married another brother. Before it was all over with, she had married seven of them. Hollywood didn't just start many years ago. It's been here a long time. But anyway, we find 
that they say, now in the resurrection, whose husband is she going to have? And the Lord said, you do err, not knowing the scriptures nor the power of God. And he refers to them of experience Moses had in Exodus chapter 3 of the burning bush experience. And in that burning bush, the Lord spoke unto Moses out of that bush and told him he was not the God of the dead, but God of the living. He was the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So he's the God of the living. Aren't you glad about that? He's the God of hope. He's the God of patience and consolation. He's the God of peace. And he's the God of all grace. And we'd like to say a little bit more about that a little bit later, perhaps. But we notice God is the God of, or God of, and blank. And we filled in the blanks some there, didn't we? God of hope. God of peace. God of patience. God of the living. God of all grace. We filled in the blank to the right of it. God of but what if we put the of on the other side of God? And we read like this, of God. Instead of God of, it's, it's of God. That's very important. I begin to look at that. <laughs> Next thing you know, I, I begin to write the scripture references down and I start off with a blank piece of paper. Five by eight piece of paper started at the top and I got through. There was no space left. Just none left. Over 83 references. Over, and that's New Testament alone. In the New Testament alone, there's more than 83 references to the of God. But it's very important as it connects and relates to us. Remember, he's a God of the living. He's a God of patience. He's a God of hope. He is the Father of mercies as well. He is the God of all comfort, and he's the God of all grace. But let's go to the other side and fill in a few blanks if be the Lord's Will and he'd help us here this morning. In the book of 1 Thessalonians 1 and 4, Paul writes to this church and he says, Knowing therefore, brethren, your election of God. So we're going to put election in the blank here. Knowing, brother beloved, your election of God. Now, you are God's children based upon the doctrine of election. Election, God's choice, as it took place before time began, before the foundation of the world. Your election is all of God. It's not of God plus anything. It's all of God. I've heard people say, well, uh, I admit, now the Bible does have something to say about election, since you brought it to my attention. It does have something to say about it. But, but the way I see it is this, that before time ever began, God voted for you, and the devil voted for you, and now you have to cast the deciding vote. Book, chapter, and verse, please. <laughs> Doesn't exist. Uh, if you want to try to find that and give it to me, uh, you'll spend a lot of time reading about a lot of good things in the Bible. You just start at Genesis, work your way to Revelation. You get through, we'll sit down and discuss it, and then you can show me where it's at. Just simply not there. The devil had nothing to do with your election, I can assure you that. Somebody says, well, Brother Lawrence, I, I got it all figured out this way. Um, God, who sees the future, knows all things. He looked down through the channels of time. He saw those that would believe and those that would have faith and those that would be baptized and those that would join the church and those that repent and those that persevere, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And therefore, he elected them. Book, chapter, and verse, please. <laughs> we come over to Psalms 14, Psalms 53 and 1. And we're told that God did look. He saw they were all together become un 
uh, called together, filthy in the sight of God. They were all together become unprofitable. There was none good, no, not one. There was none righteous, no, not one. The Apostle Paul records this message over here in Romans chapter 3 for us. There's no fear of God before their eyes. When God looked, apart from his grace, there was none that repented. There was none that believed. There was none that excised faith. There was nobody joining the church. There was nobody being baptized. By nature, man has no interest in any of those things. And besides, if it worked that way, then salvation wouldn't be by grace. It'd be by works. It'd be a combination of God and you. Paul said, knowing therefore, brother, your election of God. We filled in the blank with the word election right here. Your election of God. So we have of here. Of God. Important thing of God here. Now, in the book of Romans, chapter 8, look at verse 14, the Apostle Paul brings our attention to the Spirit of God. He says, many as are led by the Spirit of God, they are the sons of God. Now, he didn't say if you follow the Spirit of God, you become a son of God. It says, as many as are led by the Spirit of God, they are the sons of God. The Spirit of God leads the sons of God. So we have the Spirit of God on consideration here. The Spirit of God, the third person of the Godhead. He said, for we've not yet received the spirit of fear under bondage, again, but the spirit of adoption, whereby we cry, Abba, Father. The word Abba means Father. Now, let's go back to verse 14 just for a moment. For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, they are the sons of God. They're sons of God. We've got two... Two words to fill in two blanks here. The Spirit of God and the sons of God. As many as are led by the Spirit of God. Have you been led by the Spirit of God? Do you feel like God has led you a few times along the journey of life? I hope so. I know the Lord has certainly led me. And I know the difference between the Lord leading me and me leading me. And there's a vast deal of difference. When me has led me, I have found disastrous results. When the Lord has led me, I have found prosperity and I have found success. So then he says, we've not received the spirit of fear under bondage. That's what fear does. The spirit of fear brings you into bondage. He said, that's not what we've received. But rather the spirit of adoption, whereby you cry, Abba, Father. The word Abba means Father. So you crouch, you crouch, Abba, Father, or Father, Father. We're talking about now your Heavenly Father. He says, for the spirit beareth witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. The Spirit beareth witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. We got another filled in blank. The Spirit of God, the sons of God, the children of God. Notice, uh, I want you to notice here just for a few minutes, uh, the connecting uh, words that show relationship. If you go to Ephesians chapter 3, we'll come back to Romans 8 just a moment. If you go back over to Ephesians chapter 3, verses 14 and 15, Paul said, for this cause I bow my knee unto the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Paul said, I bow my knee. I pray. I bow my knee unto the Father. I'm in almost submission to the Father. I bow my knee unto the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, of whom the whole family in heaven and earth is named. There's a family in heaven and a family in earth. That's the same family, but some of them have already gone ahead. Some of our families in heaven today. And some of our families right here on this earth. There's coming a day when they're all going to be gathered together together in a place called heaven. But right now, some have preceded us, been doing this for, for generations and centuries. I bow my knee unto the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, 
of whom the whole family in heaven and earth is named. The whole family in heaven and earth has been named by God. 2 Timothy 1.19, Paul said, for the foundation of God. Here's another blank filled in, the foundation of God, another of God. The foundation of God standeth sure, having this seal. The Lord knoweth them that are his. That's comforting me to know that God knows who belongs to him. It would be very disturbing to me to think that God didn't know that. Wouldn't it you? I've used this illustration before. You know, the Lord's blessed Karen and I with four children. And I think I know those four children when I see them, no matter where they're at. I know their names. I know everything, well, almost everything about them. They keep telling me things that happened in the past. I wish they'd keep to themselves. I just seem not to know. It's past. It's, you're okay. I'm fine. So just keep it to yourself. All right. Well, let's, let's fill up the stadium down here in Nashville, the Titan Stadium. I don't know, 80,000 people say. Now let my four children, my 11 grandchildren be scattered throughout there. Give me enough time I can locate every one of them. I know who they are. I know what they look like. I know their names. I know everything, again, about them, relatively speaking. Okay? Well, the Lord has a number in his family that cannot be numbered. Like the stars of heaven, the sand of the seashore, and the dust of the earth. And yet, he knows them. The foundation of God, this is a foundational truth right here. The foundation of God stands sure. Having this seal, the Lord knoweth them that are his. You belong to the Lord, he knows you. He foreknew you. Romans 8, 29, from moment he did foreknow. He also did predestinate to be conformed to the image of his son. They might be the firstborn among many brethren. He foreknew you, chose you in Christ, knowing, brother beloved, your election of God. As men are led by the Spirit of God, they are the sons of God. Now, 1 John 3, 1, it says, What manner of love the Father hath bestowed upon us, that we should be called the sons of God. That, what, what manner of love is that? It means, when you read that, you need to just stop for a moment and think about it. What manner of love the Father bestowed upon us, that we should be called the sons of God. He says, Therefore the world knoweth us not, as it knew not the Lord Jesus Christ. Then he says, Beloved, now are we the sons of God. Not going to be. Possibly could be. But now are we the sons of God. Many of the led by the Spirit of God are the sons of God. But the Spirit beareth witness with our spirit that we're the children of God. We got a family. We got the sons of God. Now children of God. Children of God. And then he says, and if children, then heirs of God. And joint heirs with the Lord Jesus Christ. There's family, there's sons, there's children, and there's heirs. All these familiar terms we have in everyday living, everyday life. Uh, there's a lot of families represented here this morning. A good portion of my family is represented here this morning. The Lord's blessed us with a family. The Lord's blessed Karen and I with children, sons, and there'll be heirs. I'm not exactly sure what of, but the time will come anyway, there'll be heirs. Uh, we'll try not to leave them too much debt to take care of. But not just heirs, but they're joint heirs with the Lord Jesus Christ. That's, that's even amazing to me. 
When I think about that, we're not only heirs of God, we're joint heirs with his beloved son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Whatever heaven is for you, heaven is for me. Whatever heaven is for me is heaven is for you. Uh, somebody's not going to have a bigger slice of the pie than somebody else. Somebody's not going to live on a great big mansion on a hill than somebody else uh, down a little log cabin in the valley. Uh, some are not going to barely just, uh, just barely make it in the gate. And others just roll in. That's not the way it works. God's people have been totally, completely delivered. And one day the Lord presented himself a glorious bride. Look in Ephesians 5, 27. After he tells husband to love their wives as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for it. He said he might sanctify it and cleanse it by the washing of the water by the word. That one day he'll present himself a glorious church without spot, without blemish. Or any such thing. Just think about that. What do you know that's without spot? What do you know that's without blemish? Anything? <laughs> I know we try to cover our blemishes up. We try to cover our spots up. But with time, it, it just wears away, wears out. It just it doesn't work. But there's coming a day when the bride of Christ, we ushered in across the threshold into glory. It should be without spot, without blemish. No such thing. A glorious bride, a glorious church. That's because there are some things of God. Your election of God. Sons of God. Children of God. Heirs of God. Join heirs with the Lord Jesus Christ. This is always very interesting to me. I, I enjoy reading about these things. I feel to be embraced in these things that are of God. These are all of God. Not of God plus man. They're all of God, period. That's just all there is to it. They're all of God. And then I think about the Son of God. Let's fill that blank in just for a moment. The Son of God. Now God is a God of, we've mentioned that, we filled in some blanks over here, then we're trying to fill in a few blanks over here. The Son of God. In Luke 1, we find the angel coming unto Mary and tells Mary that she's highly favored among women. And she's blessed among women. Not blessed above, blessed among women. She's highly favored among women. She was sovereignly chosen of God to bring forth his son into this world. And the angel tells her that her experience is going to be that the power of the high shall overshadow thee. The Holy Ghost shall come upon thee. The power of the high shall overshadow thee. And that holy thing that shall be born of thee shall be called what? The Son of God. Generally speaking, the Lord Jesus Christ referred himself as the Son of Man. But in John's Gospel, we find where John records more verses about Jesus using the Son of God expression than Matthew, Mark, and Luke all combined, perhaps. But the Lord asked a question one time in Matthew chapter 16. He says, who do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? And some said, well, you're Jeremiah, been dead for centuries. Some say you're John the Baptist, had been beheaded just a short time before. Some say you're Elias, who'd been dead for centuries and been called up to heaven in a whirlwind, in a chariot and a horse of fire that God had sent down to get him and personally took him into glory. All these answers are wrong. And you'll find the some say crowd usually gets it wrong. Some say, some say, some say. But then the Lord said, but whom do ye say that I am? And the apostle Peter spoke up and said, we believe that thou art the Christ, the son of the living God. We got the blank filled in here with a very important word, the son of God. In John chapter 6, you find where the Lord Jesus Christ had performed some miracles. 
We find where he fed 5,000 men besides the women and the children. Did it with five loaves and two fishes. He miraculously took just a small amount of food, five loaves and two fishes, for probably eight to 10,000 people on that occasion. And the Lord blessed it. Now when the Lord blesses, a small amount becomes a large amount. When the Lord blesses, things have a way of multiplying. When the Lord blesses, things have a way of increasing, do they not? And so the Lord told them to sit down. And they organized and sat down in groups of 50. And you feed all, or read all the accounts, you find out where they sat down in groups of 50. The Lord is always organized, by the way. The God is a God of order. This universe has more order in it than this world does. I can tell you that now. God's a God of order. And then he took those five loaves and two fishes and he blessed it and he broke them and gave to the disciples and told them to pass it out. And they began to pass it out among the great multitudes. Now just pause for a second. Put yourself in the shoes of those 12 disciples on that occasion. What do you think you're thinking? You see how little food there is. You see the great multitudes out there. You probably think, well, this won't take long at all. We'll just pass out and we give out and that'll be it. Some will get some, some won't. I, I know a little bit about human nature since I possess one. I know how the human mind works since I have one. Believe it or not, I do have one. So they begin to pass it out. Every time they come back, there's still more food left. There's still fishes. There's still bread left. And they continue this process till it's all passed out and they're going to gather up the fragments and they're going to gather up 12 basketfuls. They got 12 basketfuls left over to start off with five loaves and two fishes. That grew a large crowd. The Lord is still the storm on the sea. The crowds are multiplying. But then you're going to find where the Lord and Jesus Christ began to preach. And when he began to preach, the more he preached, the smaller the crowd got. That's interesting, isn't it? That is very interesting. He said things like John 6, 37, All the Father giveth me shall come to me. And he that comes to me, I will in no wise cast out. For I came down from heaven, not to do mine own will, but the will of him that sent me. And this is the Father's will. I have given me, I shall lose nothing, but raise up again in the last day. He says, The flesh profiteth nothing. Man doesn't like to hear that, but that's the truth. The flesh profiteth nothing, but the Spirit giveth life. And my words, their spirit and their life. As he began to preach this type of message, the multitudes begin to dwindle and begin to go different directions and leave. And the Lord said to his disciples, will ye also go away? And Peter spoke up again. And Peter said, Lord, to where shall we go? To whom has the words of eternal life? We believe that thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. Another confession from the apostle Peter here. Peter believed that Jesus was the Christ, the Son of God. Those disciples believed that. I find where the Lord spoke and had an experience with Nathaniel. And he told Nathaniel, when you was under the fig tree, I knew thee. Nathaniel was surprised when he called him by name and said, Behold an Israelite in whom there is no God. Then the Lord said before, you know, when you was under that fig tree over there, you didn't see me, you didn't know me, but I saw you and I knew you. And when he told Nathaniel that, Nathaniel said, Thou art the Son of God. When he went to the grave, to the sepulchre of Lazarus, a family Jesus loved very dearly. There was Lazarus, there was Mary, and there was Martha. And he has an encounter with Martha in the very beginning as he approaches the sepulchre. 
Jesus is in total control of the situation. And he said unto Martha, he said, thy brother shall live again. She says, I know he shall live again at the last day. Martha had some information. She believed in the last day. She believed also in the resurrection. But Christ said, I am the resurrection and the life. He that believes in me shall never perish, shall never die. That's going to be the case. And he tells, gives Martha this information, and Martha says, I know that thou art the Son of God. Martha believed in the Son of God. Nathaniel believed in the Son of God. Peter believed he was the Son of God. Those disciples, those close-knit bunch, of, a, a, a group of people there that followed Jesus, they all believed he was the Son of God. But everybody did not. Let's speed forward, fast forward over here to the cross. And on the cross, you're going to find where the chief priests, scribes, and elders, the religious rulers and leaders of the day, had some things to say about Christ as he's hanging there on that cross on Calvary. It said the people that were there, they walked by and they wagged their heads and they reviled him, they mocked him. And they said, he that said he would destroy the temple, build it again in three days, if thou be the Christ, come down from the cross. They didn't believe it was the Christ. And the chief priests and the scribes and the elders, again, the religious leaders of that day, said the same thing. He said, he saved others, himself he cannot save. He had saved others in the sense that he gave sight back to the blind. He gave hearing back to the deaf. He gave uh, the ability to walk back to the lame. He uh, gave uh, uh, lepers uh, their health back. He cleansed their leprosy. And we know at least three recorded times where he raised somebody from the dead. He had delivered and saved others. But they said, him himself he cannot save. They didn't believe it was the cross. The soldiers said the same thing. The soldiers mocked him. Now here's a crowd of people that do not believe he's the Christ, the Son of God. You come to Matthew chapter 4, you're going to find where the Lord and Satan on top of the mountain called the mountain of temptation. And Satan's going to make this statement twice. He's going to say to begin with, If thou be the Son of God, cast these stones into bread. And I will tell you this morning that Satan was not questioning whether Jesus Christ was the Son of God or not. He knew he was the Son of God. If Jesus had done what he said he would do, then Jesus would be underneath Satan. And Jesus is not going to do that. If thou be the Son of God, cast these stones into bread. Prove it. Show me right now you're the Son of God. Satan knew he was the Son of God. The Lord Jesus Christ quoted from Deuteronomy. It is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of God. Then Satan takes him to the pinnacle of the temple, the very highest place of the temple, and says, if thou be the Son of God, cast thyself down, for it's written in the Psalms. He shall send his angels, they shall lift thee up, lest thou dash thy foot against a stone. Satan knows he's the Son of God. He's not questioning whether he's the Son of God or not. Satan knew full well he was the Son of God. And the Lord Jesus Christ will quote again from Deuteronomy, Thou shalt not tempt the Lord thy God. Shortly after this, you're going to find where the Lord Jesus Christ heals the mother of, of uh, Peter's wife. So that tells me Peter was a married man. Peter was married, he had a wife, his wife had a mother, his mother had an affliction, the Lord Jesus Christ healed her. And when he healed her, we find where many multitudes came to where Jesus was at, and the news spread rapidly. And Jesus healed them. And there were some who had unclean spirits and devils cast out. And the unclean spirits and devils cried out and said, Why do you come to torment us before our time? We know that thou art the Christ, the Son of God. Those unclean spirits and devils knew he was the Son of God. 
Yet the chief priests, scribes, and elders, the leaders of the religious leaders of the Jews in that day, none of them believed he was a son of God. And they all wanted him, if he was to come down from that cross, if they'd understood the Old Testament like they should have known, the Lord Jesus Christ didn't come to get on a cross and come down and deliver himself. He came to go on a cross and deliver you. And deliver me. And deliver the elect family of God. That's why he's not going to come down from the cross. The Son of God. Now, I was thinking about that a little bit this morning. And I thought, I need to be one of the most thankful people on the face of this earth that I'm not in that crowd. Aren't you glad you're not in that crowd? Aren't you glad if you was in that day, you wouldn't have been in that crowd around that cross, mocking him, reviling him, making fun of him, challenging him, the Son of God, God manifesting the flesh hanging upon that cross? I don't believe you'd have been in that crowd. I hope I wouldn't have been in that crowd. But I hope I'd have been with that little band of disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ who said, we believe you're the Christ, the Son of the living God. I like to believe I might have been in the shoes of the Apostle Peter and I could confess that he was the Christ, the Son of the living God. And you know what Jesus said unto Peter? He said, Blessed art thou, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood hath not revealed this unto thee, but my Father which is in heaven. That's how you know it, Peter. It's been revealed unto you in your heart by God. It takes God to reveal that information to anybody's heart. Man, my nature doesn't know that. Man, my nature doesn't believe that. And no amount of teaching and preaching and systematic, uh, uh, you know, teaching and laying it out from A to Z by the most, uh, um, you know, articulate men and great authors of the day, my friends. It doesn't matter who you are. It's not going to change the fact that the person you're talking to is dead in trespasses and sins. And you're never going to change it. He's got to have a heart changing. Only God can do it. Blessed art thou, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood hath not revealed this unto thee, but my Father, which art in heaven. Sons of God, children of God, heirs of God, son of God, family of God. I like the of God things here a little bit, don't you? And I am not going to get all 83 of them, so don't get worried. <laughs> I just couldn't believe it. I kept writing, I kept writing, I kept writing, I ran out of paper. It's unbelievable to me how many of gods there are that all connect and relate to us in one way or the other, all in a very wonderful and positive manner and positive way. Let's take a look at this verse here and go back to 1 Peter 5 and 10. But the God of all grace, who hath called you unto his eternal glory. The word call ends in an ED. The ones he was writing to had already experienced this call. Who's he writing to? Just it's important you go back and notice, yeah, Peter obviously is the human writer of this letter. But who is Peter writing to? We go back to 1 Peter chapter 1. He says, to the strangers, count out Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, and Asia, elect according to the foreknowledge of God through sanctification of the Spirit and obedience and sprinkling the blood of Jesus Christ. That's who he's writing to. I hope we can relate this morning. You love the Lord, I can assure you, among the elect of God. If you feel out of place in this world, I tell you, I feel more and more out of place every single day. Uh, this world is, is, is crazy. Now, this world is just, I don't have uh, strong enough words to describe it. <laughs> uh, I, I feel more and more out of place. It's like a fish right out of water. 
If you can imagine how a fish would feel when it's been in water all its life, now it's uh, on, the, on the bank outside of the water and he's flipping and flopping and everything else. He knows uh, he's out of place out there on the land. His place is in the water. If you feel like you're out of place in this world, then that means you know that you're a pilgrim and a stranger here in this world. I love the passage in, second, excuse me, in Hebrews chapter 2 when the writer tells us, excuse me, Hebrews chapter 11, when he's talking about that great chapter, the great chapter of faith and all the characters in the Old Testament who were great examples of exercising the faith that God had given unto them. He says, they haven't seen the promises afar off. There were promises God made that they were seeing afar off. Having seen the promises of God afar off, it says, yet had, they had not, of course, experienced some of these promises, but having seen them afar off, it says they embraced them and they confessed that they were pilgrims and strangers here in this world. A pilgrim, somebody on a journey, a stranger, somebody away from home. It, it don't, you know, if you feel like you're away from home, if you feel like you're on, on a journey, that's a blessing. To realize that you're not part of this world here, that this world is not your home. There's a better place for you and for me and all the family of God. But the God of all grace who hath called you, they had been called. Now there's different aspects of calling, talking the word of God. There's an external call. Every time God blesses me to preach the gospel, any other man to preach the gospel, there is a call in that message for discipleship. There's a call in that message to follow the Lord Jesus Christ. Like Paul said in Ephesians 5 and 1, Be ye followers of God as dear children. That call is not always heeded. I wish it would be. The call that goes out in the gospel, there's a call in that. It's a call to repent. It's a call to believe the gospel. It's a call to follow the Lord Jesus Christ in, a, in an humble service here in this world. It's a call for you to submit yourself unto the commandments of God and the ordinance of Christ and be baptized and, and enter into the Lord's Supper. There's an external call in that. But it's not always effectual. But there is a call that is effectual. That's an inward call, an internal call. That's the kind of call I believe is under consideration here when Peter says, but the God of all grace who hath called you, calls you what? Into his eternal glory by Jesus Christ. He's called you. You go back to Romans 8, 29. One of whom he did foreknow, he also did predestinate to be conformed to the image of the Son. They might be the firstborn among many brethren. And when he did predestinate, he did what? He called. E.D. That's been going on since the beginning of time. It's going on today. It'll go on to the last air promise is born into this world. Somebody said, Brother Lawrence, I just don't know why in the world this, the Lord's continuing to let this world exist. I'm going to give you one real good reason. The last air promise has not yet made its interest into this world. But when the last air promise makes his interest or her interest into this world here, and God borns that person of the Spirit of God, I don't know how much longer the Lord, God will let this world exist, but as far as what I'm saying here, there'd be no reason for it to exist any longer. But until that happens, it's going to exist. Somebody said, what if man destroys this earth before that happens? Can't happen. <laughs> Can't happen. Oh, he can do a lot of destroying, and he's doing a lot of destroying today. And 
I don't know what all is going to happen between now and the time the Lord comes back again, but I can assure you that nothing's going to happen to this world until the last heir of promise makes Israel her entrance into this world has been conceived in the womb of their mother, and God is born that individual of the Spirit of God. That's an effectual call that all God gives, and it cannot be denied. But the God of all grace, that call comes by grace. The God of all grace. There's not an error of your life, not an error of my life. We don't need the grace of God in. You may not think about it, but I can assure you do. I know we preach a lot about the saving grace of God, and that's something we need to do. Ephesians 2, 8, For by grace are you saved through faith, that not of yourselves. It's the gift of God. Fill in another blank. Gift of God. For by grace are you saved through faith, that not of yourselves. It's of God, not of yourselves. It is the gift of God. Not of works, lest any man should boast. 2 Corinthians 8 and 9. Paul said, For we know the grace of God, that though he were rich, he's talking about the Lord and Jesus Christ, for we know the grace of God, that though he was rich, yet he became poor for our sakes, that we through his poverty might become rich. That's uh, very much akin to our study verse this morning on the prayer list of 2 Corinthians 5 and 21. He says, We know the grace of God. Here's something we know. It took God's grace to send his son into this world. You just think about that for a moment. Oh, how I do believe with all my heart that I would try to uh, get in front of a speeding bullet to save my wife and my children and my grandchildren. I believe I'd give my life for, the, for them. I really believe I would. If that's what it required, if that's what took, uh, needed in order for them to be spared, I believe I'd be willing to get in their place. But I'm telling you, if you're going to ask me to give the life of one of my children and grandchildren or somebody else, that's a different story. But John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten Son. Galatians 1 and 4, But the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us, that he might deliver us from this present evil world. Jesus Christ is that gift of God. The gift of God, that's Jesus Paul speaks about the unspeakable gift. That's Jesus. You know, he's, he's the gift of God, my friends. Salvation, indeed, is by the grace of God. It's the gift of God, lest any man should boast. But go back to 2 Corinthians 8 9. He says, For we know the grace of God. Though he was rich, he's, Jesus is the heir of all things. He's the one who created all of this. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and all things were made by Him. Without Him was not anything made that was made. And yet He was willing to become poor from the time that Jesus was conceived until the time He went to, to Calvary. Excuse me, and then uh, 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 He came off the cross at Calvary and laid in a barred tomb for three days and three nights. It's all a picture of a life of poverty. He was born among poor parents. He was wrapped in swaddling clothes and laid in a manger. There was no room for them in the inn. He rode upon an ass, the coat the fold of an ass that was borrowed from somebody in the city. He borrowed a boat to go from one side to the other. He didn't own it. And then when he was crucified, God in his providence had a man named Joseph Arimathea to take his body down off the cross and put in his own barred tomb. He was a rich man that God provided. Right, the right, he was the right man in the right place at the right time. He had a sepulchre where never man had laid. 
And the Lord Jesus Christ is going to use it for three days. His entire life is a life of poverty. When he goes to Calvary, he hangs ever suspended between heaven and earth. As the Son of God, he hangs there, my friends, uh, and, uh, representing God, the Son of Man representing man. And here we have where he who was rich became poor for our sakes, and we through his poverty. Here's a man whose righteousness personified, and yet he's going to have that righteousness imputed over here to the elect family of God. He's going to take the sins of the elect family of God and take it in his own body to the tree of the cross. Yes, that's the grace of God, the God of all grace. When it comes to justification, Romans 3.24 says, Having justified us by his grace. Ephesians chapter 1 verse 7, Whom we have redemption through, through his grace. Redemption is by grace. Justification is by grace. When we speak about the grace of God in this matter, it's, it's all of God. It's all of grace. I can assure you that. But we need grace on a daily basis, do we not? In the book of Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 15 and 16, Paul says, For we have not a high priest which cannot be touched with the feelings of our infirmities, but in all points was tempted like as we are yet without sin. Therefore, the word therefore always means the next, next statement is based upon what the previous statement was all about. Therefore, let us come boldly to the throne of grace that we might obtain mercy and find grace to help in the time of need. He's a God of reigning grace. He's a God of helping grace. Let us come to that throne of grace. Aren't you glad it's not a throne of the law? Aren't you glad you're not having to come to a throne and you don't know whether you're going to get mercy, whether you're going to get grace? But God said when you come boldly to the throne of grace, you can obtain mercy and you can find grace to help in the time of need. My need is every single day, whether I understand it, think about it or not. My need is every day and thank God there's a throne I can approach, uh, approach to and I can find that grace to help me through another day of living, another day of life. Serving grace. Hebrews 12 and 28. Wherefore, seeing we have a kingdom which cannot be removed, let us serve God with reverence and godly fear. Let us have grace to be able to do that. It takes the grace of God to serve God properly. It takes the grace of God uh, to be able to hold up under the pressures of life. The grace of God, my friends, to, in, to uh, deal with the encounters that you deal with on a regular daily basis. This morning we're serving God, but worshiping God. When worship service is over, our service is not. We still have service to God tomorrow and Tuesday and Wednesday and Thursday and Friday and Saturday. It's, it's a delight to serve God, isn't it? <laughs> it ought to be. The commandments of God are not grievous. It ought to be a delight to come to the house of God, a delight to serve the Lord Jesus Christ, a delight to serve his people. Serving grace, helping grace, sufficient grace. Oh, how Paul appreciated the sufficient God's grace when he was caught up to the third heaven, recorded over there in 2 Corinthians chapter 12. Caught up to the third heaven, a place called paradise. And when he came back out of that experience, a thorn in the flesh was given unto him. The messenger of Satan, we're told, to buffet him. It, it had to be tough, it had to be hard. People are always speculating about what the thorn in the flesh was all about. I don't know if we need to know what it was about. We just know it was a thorn in the flesh. I tell you, a thorn in the flesh is not comfortable. A thorn in the flesh is not pleasant, is it? You get a thorn in the flesh, you like to try to get it out of there. I know I do. Even a little splinter. Whatever it might be, a little briar. It just doesn't feel good. I want to get it out of there. 
He had a thorn, not a briar, not a splinter. He had a thorn in the flesh. I, I could just visualize it if it was in a literal sense, like the thorns they put on the head of the Lord Jesus Christ. I've seen those thorns over there. They're not like that. They're about like that. And they've got a crown, and they made a crown out of those thorns and put it upon the precious brow of the Son of God and pressed down, I know, severely upon his precious head. Paul prayed about it, prayed three times that the Lord might take it away. And I tell you, I believe the Apostle Paul was a man of prayer. I believe anybody knew how to pray, Paul did. I don't think Paul was praying amiss, but in this case here, it was not God's will to take that thorn away. But it was God's will to give him something to endure. It's called grace. He said, for my grace is sufficient for thee. <laughs> tell me today, if you can, raise a hand. Give you the opportunity to tell you the experience all about it. If you can tell me one time in your life when the grace of God was not sufficient for you. Don't see any hands up. You know his grace has always been sufficient. It's always put food on the table for you. It's always clothed you. It's always give you shelter. It's always given you happiness and joy and the things that God has given us to rejoice in, has it not, along life's pathway. The enabling grace of God. Think about Acts 4 and 33 where the apostles were suffering because they were preaching about the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ and they, they took stripes upon their backs for delivering that message. That's never happened to me in my life. I hope it never does. <laughs> but I tell you what God gave them to endure it. It says, and great grace was upon them. <laughs> I like the great grace of God. I believe I've had a few experiences of God's great grace in my life. And before God gave the grace, I could see not enough strength. I could see not enough courage. I could see uh, I didn't have what it took to meet the, the task to do the job. But when the time come after prayer, God gave grace to be able to function. God gave grace to be able to, to do what lay before me. That was great grace. I have told people in afternoon services, that's where great grace comes in. When the stomach is full and the eyes are droopy <laughs> and, the, and the thermostat's too hot. And I tell you, putting the thermostat up, put food in your stomach, <laughs> and be in the afternoon, that's a recipe for sleep. So it takes great grace, doesn't it? But I've made a promise over the years to God's people. I mean, in those situations, I have promised them if they'd stay awake while I preached, I'd stay awake while I preached. And so far, I've managed to do that. I don't think anybody ever say, well, our brother Lawrence preached, but he was sleeping while he preached. But I can tell you what, I can tell you people that sleep while I preach. <laughs> and then they come through the handshake and say, Brother Lawrence, I tell you, I can get so comfortable when you're preaching. I'm so comfortable. I know you're sound and solid. And I know you're not going to say anything that's wrong. And I can just relax. And sometimes I just drift off to sleep. <laughs> Well, that message was so comforting to me. <laughs> and, and I heard every word you said. <laughs> well, I'm going to just go tell you the truth here this morning. When I see closed eyes, I'm, I, I'm just totally convinced you're not hearing anything and you're just sleeping. And if, if you need it, just go right ahead. But the God of all grace, who hath called us unto his eternal glory. Now, 
will close with this thought. What has he called you into? An eternal glory. Man has his glory in this world. His glory may be chariots. His glory may be horses. His glory may be, a, 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 you know, a mansion on the hill. His glory may be his bank account. His glory may be his own looks. The psalmist says some glory in chariots and some in horses, but we are glory in the fact that we fear the Lord. There is the glory of kings, the glory of crowns, the glory of kingdoms that's existed down through the ages. You find where Haman came uh, uh, to his family and told him about all the glories uh, of his riches, about his promotion and one thing else. But I'm going to sum all that up in this one verse in 1 Peter 1.24. He said, all flesh is as grass and the glory thereof. The flower fadeth and falleth away. The flower grows up. The flower blooms. It reaches its zenith. It's beautiful. But how long does it last? He's given you a picture of earthly glory. It doesn't last, does it? It just fades away. But the glory I'm telling you about is eternal glory. We've gotten a few glimpses of it along life's pathway. In the Old Testament day, Jesus appeared on Mount Sinai in his glory. He appeared in the tabernacle in his glory. His glory appeared in the temple. When Jesus came, John 1, 14, and the word was made flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory as the glory of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and full of truth. We began to get a few uh, uh, glimpses of what eternal glory is all about, do we not? We go to 2 Corinthians chapter 4, and he says, Oh, the outward man perish, the inward man is renewed day by day. He says, for we look not on things which are seen, the things which are not seen. The things are seen are temporal, but the things are not seen are eternal. We're talking about eternal glory. When you get to heaven, my friends, you're going to be in a glorified body. When you get to heaven, your body shall be fashioned like the glorious body of the Son of God. You've been called an eternal glory. All earthly glory fades away, but eternal glory is eternal. It shall never fade away or go away. That's what you've been called into. I'll tell you, just keep that in mind. That ought to motivate you, (laughs) or it ought to motivate me to do a better job of serving him today than I did yesterday and tomorrow than today. Uh, If that's not motivation enough, I I don't have anything else to give you. He's called you into his eternal glory. Eternal means without end. And when you get there, you'll serve a glorified Christ, a glorified God in a glorified body the God of all grace who hath called us into his eternal glory by Jesus Christ.